He's held various academic positions, including professor at the University of Adelaide, director of the South Australian Museum, principal research scientist at the Australian Museum, and visiting chair in Australian studies at Harvard University in the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology. I, I had to look up that word for a minute just to make sure that we had the right word here. You don't want to stumble on it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. His books include Throwing Away Leg, Here on Earth, The Future Eaters, and The Weathermakers. Under the Gillard government, he was appointed Climate Change Commissioner with the specific task of communicating the science of climate change to the public, explaining the reasons why it's necessary to price carbon. He also has the honour of having a beastie named after him, Bertelia Flanariae, and you never know, we might get to, to where that came from. Um, Elizabeth Colbert, the author of The Sixth Extinction, describes his new book, The Atmosphere of Hope, which uh, is just was launched on the 2nd, is that right? Uh, the 27th of August. 27th so of August, yeah. So as months. she described it as thoughtful candidate and yes, ultimate, thoughtful candid and yes, ultimately upbeat. It could not be more timely. It is just the book the world needs right now. So please welcome Tim Flannery to Milan. <laughs> And just, just a word before we begin, if I may, I hope it won't come as too much of a disappointment to this audience if we do not spend time discussing here whether or not climate change exists. <laughs> I'm happy to take any questions anyone has, but uh, okay, won't waste time. Well, that'll do. That's enough. That was what I was going to yeah. say. Okay, well, we, at the end here we'll take some questions, but I think it's time, time to get on with talking about how to deal with it and um, how to mitigate its effects. Okay, so, but I'd like to begin, if I may, please, with your, um, your book about being in Papua New Guinea and Irian Jaya, Throwing Away Leg, which I, I, I mean, I hadn't read, and what a joy it was to, to read about your experiences up there looking for mammals and marsupials. Um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was in the 80s you were doing that, wasn't it? Uh, 80s, 90s, and a tiny bit in the 2000s, yeah. but mostly the 80s and 90s, yeah. And, I mean, were you going up there for adventure? Um, I, I suppose part of me was. I remember when I was a PhD student at the University of New South Wales opening a map of Papua New Guinea, because this is before we had, you know, GPS and all the rest of it, mobile phones and so forth, and there was a map with a big yellow bit that said uncontrolled territory, and then there was bits that said obscured by cloud. We don't know whether there's a mountain there or a valley <laughs> or whatever. So, so it, it was, that was kind of exciting. But really, the main reason I was going there was to because the mammals were so poorly known. N you know, there, was, there was no book you could go to about the mammals of Papua New Guinea. So that was really what I wanted to achieve, was just a, a sort of definitive account of the, the mammals of that area. Which is what you did, in fact. You actually wrote the definitive manual of the mammals of Papua New Guinea. I did, yeah. Sort of a, it's, it's not quite a textbook, but it's, the, it's, you know, it's, it's a full account of the whole fauna. But we ended up you know, describing Something like, I don't know, 30 new mammal species, maybe a bit more, all up from, from the region wh when we've done our surveys. And that's quite a lot because there's, you know, the whole mammal fauna was probably about 300 species, so that's adding 10% you know, yeah. to it. And, and yeah. th that seemed to me that, that reading that book, this was when you first got a sense of the fragility of the environment, though, that some of the things that you were looking at you had just seen them in time because they were going to, they were going to become extinct. Well, that's absolutely right. It was, um, oh, it, was, it was an extraordinary experience. I remember my first insights actually into, into climate change came from climbing one mountain peak after another. And I was particularly interested in 
the high mountain summits and their alpine flora and fauna because they were ancient environments that were very, very distinctive and very poorly explored. Um, so I was trying to climb as many of the high peaks as I could. And I noticed the same thing on all of them. You, you get to the tree line, which is that area defined by the, you know, enough frosts that trees won't grow. Yeah. And there was always evidence that the grass was being taken over by a, an advancing tree line. And I, if, at first, I didn't really know what to make of it. And it was only when I'd seen it a few times, I realised, well, maybe this is a global phenomenon. Maybe this is climate change. And of course, that's what it turned out to be. Uh, I was lucky enough to walk up to the only glacier in the Australo New Guinea region on, on Mount Carstens in Irianjaya. That was melting quickly. I remember entering a, an ice cave at the snout of the glacier, and you could see the rate of melt. But sadly, um, I discovered just last week that that glacier will be gone completely in the next two to three years. So that's, it's, a, it's a kind of catastrophe unfolding. So I was so fortunate to see that while it was still a, a glacier. <coughs> and so have you been back to, I mean, one of the things that, the most poignant stories you're talking about in there, about these tree kangaroos that you're going to look at, that uh, yeah. uh, they exist because people really can't survive in those areas. So, but now as the temperature's rising, people are going in there and hunting them. And uh, I, I suppose I, I can tell that in story in two short anecdotes. Uh, one concerns uh, the, the telephone area in the very centre of the island where I remember in 1984, I 85 actually, I went into the most remote and beautiful valley of mid-montane oak forest. Most people don't realise that oak trees are tropical plants but these were huge oaks with acorns like this big around, you know, incredible and very diverse, full of marsupials, full of tree kangaroos and, and remote enough that people didn't hunt it very often. I went back there in 2001 um, and, and I couldn't believe what I saw. I flew over the area and first I thought I was in the wrong valley but I realised I wasn't. It was just this smouldering ruins. Um, and what had happened was there was a very severe El Nino year in 1998 and uh, all of the trees were hit by a severe frost. It was up there, you know, El Nino really manifests as very clear skies and frost. And the oak trees were very frost sensitive and the rest of the flora. So they dropped their leaves um, and then dryness set in, all of that fallen vegetation just caught fire and for the first time, probably ever, that valley was just devastated by a vast fire. And then, of course, people came in, the forests had been cleared and started making their little gardens and things. And It was really sad. I remember going into villages, because I knew those people from 85, went into the huts of the same people I'd lived with for months earlier on, and the most hopeless hunters had racks full of tree kangaroo jaws because it was so easy to hunt, you know. They, once the forest was gone, they were just in a few isolated fragments. So that's one story of climate change and changing conditions really causing disaster. But further north, in the North Coast Range, uh, we discovered a couple of tree kangaroo species that were down to less than 100 individuals right on the brink of extinction. And due to the valiant efforts of a husband and wife team called Jim and Jean Thomas from Melbourne Zoo, who went up there and lived in those villages and brought their children up in village New Guinea, they have turned that situation around entirely. They've uh, got the people to agree to a 10,000 square kilometre um, uh, faunal refuge on the, on the high mountains in that that's, area. That's, very, that's very a big area, 10,000 square kilometres. It is, yes. I think, I think that's the right figure, 10,000 square kilometres. I'll have to I'll go back and double <coughs> check that, but it's a very large area right across the top, 50 villages really, yeah. North Coast Range. To um, give, to give for, for, for the benefit of our people yeah. here, the Obi, the Obi Valley is 75 square kilometres, just yes. to give you some idea. So if we're doing 10,000 square kilometres, yeah, we're talking about a big it's area. It's about 150, actually I can do it for you, it's 150 by 50, what's that? 
Yeah, 150 kilometres by 50. So it's a big, big area anyway. Um, maybe it's not 10, maybe it's 1,000, like yeah. other figures. But um, it encompasses the entire habitat of these two tree kangaroo species. Hunting's been stopped there. They're doing uh, monitoring work, and the numbers of the rarest tree kangaroos has gone up from about 100 individuals, which we knew about, through to about 500 now. So that's oh. fabulous. Okay. So, so, so there's both good and bad in what's happened since I left. Okay. Yeah. So just before we leave Thrownway Leg, how did you get a beastie named after you, just as a matter of interest? And could you want to t are, you, are, you, are you prepared to tell the audience what this particular creature is? Yes, I, yes, I will. It's a, a tapeworm, very sadly. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, and uh, it, was, it, it was... My name was bestowed on it because uh, I was in a very high mountain area in the centre of the island where I related about that forest destruction that went on in that general area. And there was a young man there who was a great possum hunter. He caught lots of possums. And I noticed him opening up the guts of these possums he was going to eat, feeling along the large intestine for something, then piercing the intestine and pulling out this big yellow worm like this and just dropping it straight into his mouth. <laughs> and um, I thought, you know, Willock, that can't be too good for you. I don't know. He said, no, 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 it's the way our people do it. He was adopted into the area, so no one else did it, but he did because of his traditions. So I thought I'd better preserve one or two. So I grabbed one or two of them off him and said, can I have these? And you know, sent them to a parasitologist in Australia, thinking yeah. that when I came back, I'd tell him, look, this is, the doctor says this is really bad for you. you know. And I never heard from the parasitologist for about a year. And finally, I got this very excited letter, because this is in the days before email, of course, and things as well, saying, oh, look, this tapeworm is quite an extraordinary discovery. It's the only edible tapeworm in the universe that we know about. <laughs> And I want to do you the great, the great honour of naming it after you. And I, don't know, I don't know how honourable it is to uh, have a tapeworm named after you, but there you go. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's move over to your new book, The Atmosphere of Hope. One of the things about The Weathermakers that was that it was, it was written in this very calm and lucid prose, but at the same time it was profoundly depressing because it was almost like this kind of accumulation of individual cases, each one of which was small in itself, but as you kind of went through it, it just kind of became mm. this, like, we're, we're buggered, you know, really, we're, we're, there's no hope for us. But in this new book, you seem to have found uh, something inside yourself which gives rise to a more optimistic view. Can you, can you talk about that in a personal sense, what that is? Sure, yeah. Um, look, it is surprising to me as well. I, mo most of the last decade, I've uh, found myself... Um, deep down inside, quite distraught at what's happening. We've been following a worst-case scenario for emissions trajectory. We're now on the brink of hitting 400 parts per million in the atmosphere, and we see what's happening to our world. It's really starting to fray at the edges. Um, and a lot of damage is being done to people and biodiversity as a result. But there was three things that I realised over the last 12 months or so that really gave me cause for hope. And the first of them was that I, with, the, with the work the Climate Council does, and if there's any Climate Council supporters out there, thank you from the bottom of my heart. You've <coughs> been doing... Yeah, thank you for your support. It's been so important. Um, we, we, we now... I, I now get a sense that people know climate change through lived experience. More and more people. So it's not some theoretical thing that you have to resort to graphs for or scientific explanations. People now know it because of lived experience. And that's hugely important because we're seeing a groundswell of change in the community now for support for dealing with this, not just in Australia, but, but globally. So that support for change in 
the community is just the most important thing we can have. Secondly, um, a, a most extraordinary set of figures was published earlier this year by the International Energy Agency. And what they said essentially was that in 2014, for the first time they've been keeping records for many decades, um, economic growth decoupled from the growth in emissions from fossil fuels. So economic growth globally decoupled from fossil fuel use. That is an astonishing outcome which I didn't expect and the many experts didn't expect to see for many years to come. What seems to have happened is that the, the little things that all of us have done for many years, you know, the billions of little things like changing our light bulbs and getting a more fuel efficient vehicle or getting a bike lane put into our communities or um, planting some trees or whatever, it's all added up to a situation where demand for electricity has, has been declining. Um, in Australia for the last five years, and it's because of efficiency, we're just getting much better at using it. We have more insulated houses, we've got more efficient appliances and so forth. And so that's allowed us to continue prospering economically at the same time emissions go down. And two big things about that, one is we should pat ourselves on the back. I mean, I don't know how hopeless <coughs> I've felt so often at changing the light globes or putting solar panels on the roof and the other things we've done. It feels very small, but cumulatively it's added up. And incidentally, that business of retrofitting cities alone is a $2 trillion a year business now. So you can see why it's been so impactful on the use of fossil fuels. That's the second thing. The third thing really is the heart of the new book, and it's a, a growing realisation that there's a basket of technologies out there that can help us pull back from the brink of really dangerous climate change by drawing carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere and using it or storing it safely. Mm. So if I can sum up this new book in, in a few words, it seems to me that what you're saying is that we're faced with two challenges. The first is to uh, stop, to find ways to limit putting more carbon into the atmosphere. And the second is to try and get carbon that's already in the atmosphere out of it in some ways. And I just wondered if you could please, you know, give a picture of where we are at the moment, perhaps in, in, sure. in the first one, and then we'll go to the second one of those, if that's a fair yeah. assumption. No, abso fair. It, it absolutely is. And look, globally, we've made huge strides to weaning ourselves <coughs> off fossil fuels, first through the efficiency measures that I mentioned earlier, second through the growth of renewables. We, we can now see a clear pathway through to decarbonising our economies. The US is well ahead of Australia. They've... Um, They've had a big boom in, in renewables and they're also closing down their coal-fired power plants on the basis of protecting human health. And that's just so essential. I mean, they're closing down their old inefficient plant and, and new, new clean productions coming online. Where we're failing in Australia is we're not closing down the old inefficient plant. Mm -hmm. You know, individuals are investing in solar panels and we've seen, you know, with the renewable energy target, there'll be some growth in wind and so forth, but it's constrained because cheap, dirty coal that's killing people in Australia and globally, is allowed to run full bore now. And we've seen an uptick in our emissions since the abolition of the carbon tax as a result of those old coal-fired power plants just going for broke. You can taste it in the air in places like the Latrobe Valley where there's just more coal being burnt very inefficiently than ever before. So we know what, we, what needs to be done. We could do it, but we lack the will at the moment. We lack the political will to do it. If we fail to do it, what people are increasingly talking about are geoengineering solutions. And so you can think about reducing emissions as the first way, geoengineering solutions as the second pathway through. And that, again, will be cat catastrophic if we do that. If we use sulphur in the atmosphere to try to cool the planet in, in a last-ditch effort to put off some of the worst impacts of climate change, it will be catastrophic because it's akin to fighting a poison with a poison. The CO2 will still be in the air, 
the oceans will be acidifying, uh, and that sulphur will start really having a big impact on um, things like uh, the, the monsoon, you know, which feeds 1.4 billion people in South Asia. So uh, the thing about geoengineering too is it's really cheap you know, on, on a global scale, and it's really effective. It'll have an impact the instant you put the sulphur into the atmosphere. There's no global treaty regulating it. The chances are that a China increasingly embattled in you know, dealing with ever worsening climate change or a Russia may decide to use geoengineering and, and, and damn the rest of us. But, so that's the second way, a very dangerous way. The third way, as I've called the technologies in my book to deal with this, is to start now on research and development of technologies which can draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at scale, at the gigaton scale. Now, until I wrote the book, there was no name for this basket of technologies. They were called tree planting or geoengineering or, or, or direct action policy by the Australian Federal Government. There was no overall term for them. So I've tried in the book to identify the technologies, uh, name them, tell people how they work, and then give some sense of where they might get us by 2050. Some of those technologies that you're talking about there, you're not terribly optimistic, though, about their capacity to do it, because you're talking, one of, I mean, in the same way that in the weather makers you were lucid and calm about it, you're quite lucid and calm and going through, well, there is this possibility mm. with seaweed, there is this possibility That's with right. the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and you're saying, well, this one is going to cost this much per tonne of carbon right. to get out. And one of the things that it feels to me like I, I didn't get from the book was, who's going to pay for that? And, and A, you know, is it, are we able to do it to scale? Yeah. Look, I think I answered the question of whether we could do it to scale. But before I address that, I should explain to people what these technologies actually are. The, there's, there's two major kinds of third-way technologies. One are, are called the biological approaches. And they're really great because the power source for them is free. It's the sun. The, the, the mechanism that captures the CO2 is also free and abundant. It's plants, in, you know. Um, the trouble is they're confined, they're confined by the, the, the biosphere itself, which already is really burdened by human demands on it. You know, we're f we're the way we fish, the way we use forests and the way we use agricultural lands are driving the capacity of the biosphere to maintain life ever downwards. So just to give you an example, at the moment we're putting up 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. If you wanted to globally, yeah, yeah. If you wanted to take four gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere using tree planting, you would need to plant an area the size of Australia in trees, in forests, and you need to do it at the rate of one New York state-sized hunk every year for 50 years. And at the end of that period, on average, you will have drawn out four gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year, one tenth of what we put up. But Doing that will change the way the planet works. Most of Australia is very bright at the moment and it reflects sunlight back into space and cools Earth. If you replace that with a dark forest canopy, despite the fact you're drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, you would heat up the planet because that dark surface would absorb uh, sunlight and turn it into heat energy. So it's one of the constraints, as I talk about, for the biological system. So they're there, they're very valuable, um, but they're limited in scope. The chemical pathways, I think, are, are, are equally interesting and perhaps with more potential. Um, they include things like carbon-negative cement. You know, at the, mom at the moment, concrete and cement manufacturing uh, emits about a gigaton or two of carbon a year. If we could use carbon-negative cement, which absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into the cement for years after it's laid and doesn't emit any, cement any CO2 during production, we'd be miles ahead. 
the, the, it, and that carbon negative cement, its manufacturers claim is uh, stronger, more durable and cheaper than standard concrete and cement to make. But of course it doesn't have a track record, so no one's going to build the Sydney Harbour Bridge of it, you know, it's kind of... But, but there's a lot of less risky ways to use concrete and cement. We could be uh, trying to you know, pioneer and get the industry to scale in using and give it a track record so it'll be better off. That's one example. Another one is olivine-type rocks, serpentinites and so forth, that are very abundant in Queensland. As they weather, they naturally absorb CO2. It's one of the ways Earth keeps the carbon balance in place. If we um, could uh, excavate and crush up, say, five or six gigatons of serpentinite rock and strew it on beaches as sand or use it as um, a soil amendment in gardens and so forth, um, we could draw out a gigaton of carbon from the atmosphere. That's nearly four gigatons of CO2 using that amount of rock. Um, the problem with the chemical pathways such as that is that you've got to have energy to crush up the rock. Today we burn fossil fuels mostly to get that energy. But if we could use wind power or solar to do that, and imagine a hammer on the end of a windmill going crushing rock, you know, something simple, you'd do it cleanly and you would be drawing CO2 down at scale. Um, there's other amazing things. I mean, I've held in my hand a little uh, mobile phone cover made of plastic derived from CO2 in the atmosphere. Now, at the moment, it's probably the most expensive mobile phone cover on Earth, but yeah. the potential's there to do that. Just, you know, it won't stay long on this, but two more examples I want to give. One, last week, was a major announcement by a, a research group that they had been able to make carbon nanofibres using atmospheric CO2. Carbon nanofibres are increasingly in demand for aircraft manufacture. They're very light and very strong. They're going to be really important in our futures. Um, the most important thing about this announcement was that the production method using atmospheric CO2 produces nanofibres at one-tenth the cost of conventional methods. Just a fantastic breakthrough. Now, we're never going to sequester a gigaton of CO2 with carbon nanofibres, but we can, they can contribute. Just two days ago, another incredible breakthrough, I found it hard to believe actually, by, by some South Korean researchers that said they had found a method of activating used coffee grounds to capture atmospheric methane. I mean, how was that? Methane being a greenhouse gas 20 times more potent than CO2. Again, we're never going to get a gigaton unless we all drink 10 cups a day and put our <laughs> grounds aside to do that. But these technologies are beginning to emerge and we need to change our view about what the way we fund R&D and the way we think about this because at the moment we're funding a few um, third-way technologies through the government's direct action program but they're all farm gate types. We're not taking a broader, more strategic view and saying where does Australia's better interests lie in the long term? Where do we have a technological advantage in these technologies? How can we start drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere? Which ones of these are going to be um, self-propelled because they're profitable? Which ones are going to need some sort of government funding? So we need to sort all of that out and start thinking much more clearly about this problem. So just going back a step, though, because you, you're actually kind of addressing the second part of that question I made a little while ago, which was that, you know, getting carbon out of the atmosphere that exists into it. This, at the moment, we're still putting 40 gigatons in a year. That's right. And what's your... Your, your prognosis, can we stop doing this? Is there some yeah. way that we can actually persuade? I mean, it's very interesting that this book has come out in, uh, in time for the Paris talks that are going to be in December, but yeah. that's those talks have already started. The, 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 the heads of government are already and their representatives are already beginning, and uh, President Hollande in, in Paris this morning said, 
that he at the moment wasn't thinking it was going to go very well, even though yeah. he's put, staked his whole political career on it. So right. what's your prognosis? How, how are we going to get out of where we are at the moment? We know, we know where, what's going to happen in Paris because the um, pledges are already on the table and we can measure them up. So they're a great advance over where we are now. At the moment, as of 2015, we are on the worst case scenario emissions trajectory that you know, for this climate scientists you know, told us about a decade ago. It's the worst case. So we are heading towards two degrees of warming very, very quickly. Um, Paris meeting will change the trajectory a bit, but won't put us on track for two degrees. It'll be more like a three degree world we'll be aiming for at that point. And in fact, when you look at the changes that are now required, because we've delayed for a decade, we haven't acted earlier, um, it's going to be really, really tough to get under two degrees. In fact, that was my motivation for writing the book. I realised, you know, a year or so ago that it was almost unavoidable that we were going to exceed the two degree barrier and there would be very serious consequences as a result of that. So the only way forward I can see is to stamp on emissions as quickly as we can, uh, do everything, pull out all stops to try to get emissions down from every method we have, but then act in the realisation that we're still going to be over two degrees, most likely, and that we need another way forward. And the third way technologies I talk about are about the state of maturity of wind and solar in the early 1970s. You know, when, if you remember back then, the cost of electricity from wind or solar was thousands of times higher than conventional. And yeah. it, was, it took 30 years to get them to market, you know. And it wasn't clear which technology was going to win. There was a whole lot of options out there at that point. That's where the third way is now. I am absolutely certain, though, that we're going to need to use those technologies by 2050. Um, and th 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 there's nothing's going to happen for a decade. The next decade is going to be dismal because we're going to see the problem grow. We'll start eating into the emissions, but we'll see it won't be fast enough. None of these technologies are going to be anywhere near ready in the next decade, so we're going to have a tough decade ahead of us. After 2025, I hope, if proper investments are made in third-way technologies and we reduce that emissions trajectory sufficiently, we'll be able to see some real the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, some real hope. Could I just talk a little bit about 2050 and why it's so hard to try to yes, imagine? Um, <coughs> when I was thinking about these technologies, I, I really... I could see all of the possibilities there, and as you said, I couldn't really work out which ones were going to be the, the winners. And I thought, how do I think about this problem? And the only way I could really make sense of it was to say, well, let's pretend that I'm not living in 1915, uh, 2015, but I'm living in 1915, and I'm trying to imagine a world as it is in 1950. You know? So there I am in 1915, in a world of empires, of horse-drawn carriages, cavalry charges in battle, uh, you know, a, a kind of an, a, a what looks to us to be an antique world, really. And I'm trying to imagine a world 35 years from then, which has nuclear weapons, jet aircraft, and about half of the world living under communist rule. You know, unimaginable, completely unimaginable. So when I sit here in 1915 to try to think of, uh, sorry, 2015 to think of 2050, I, I'm very hesitant to identify technologies that'll work. But what I do know with absolute certainty is the nature of the problem we'll be trying to solve. We will be trying with all of our might to get CO2 out of the atmosphere because we will be so far committed to those dire outcomes that we will be scrabbling to turn things back. So that's really useful knowledge, knowing what the problem is. We don't know what the technology is going to be, but at least we, out we lay out, or I lay out in the book, 
what the possibilities are for those technologies as of our current understanding. And we need to start now with R&D on them because of the long development pathways that all of these technologies have before they'll get to scale. So interesting enough, it's, that it's interesting that this book has come out in the same year as Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything. Mm. Uh, and I wonder how it is that you respond to her book, because one of the mm. things that Naomi Klein seems to be saying, and wonderfully articulately mm. in Australia the same week, is this aspect that the, the economic system that we're operating under is part of the problem, that unless we're prepared to change the economic system that we're operating under, we're not going to be able to actually face up to the issues th of climate change. I wonder how you respond to that. Well, look, I, I agree with Naomi that the, the capitalist system as it's currently manifest uh, allows all of these externalities, as they're called, to just go on un... un can you, can you, can you be more specific? What do you mean by an externality? Well, externalities are all of the... It's the it is the damage inflict on so inflicted on society and the environment as a few individuals seek to get rich, basically. Yeah. It's the, the collateral damage we, we face. And um, the system we works, work under uh, it allows that to go on unfettered, by and large. Um, but, I, but what Naomi hasn't really said is what do we do? So let's say we do change the system. We're still on a trajectory where we are going to face catastrophe later this century unless we can get some of the gas out of the air. Right? So however we get the emissions down, whether it's by changing capitalism or, or by just absolutely slamming down with everything we've got in the current system, we're still going to have that problem. Right? Yeah. So, uh, and that is what this book's about. It's not about how we reduce emissions. It's, it makes the case that we simply cannot get at the moment, because we're so very late, back down below two degrees. That's a scientifically well-attested fact now. Unless there's some miraculous shift, you know, and it's possible it'll happen, I guess, but, you know, all of the projections that made by the scientists and the economists and others suggest we're not going to get there that way. We're going to need these technologies. But economically, we're not going... If we, we're still producing... most. The most of the carbon that's coming to the atmosphere is coming from burning coal, isn't it? I mean, that's about 60% right. of all the carbon that's going to the atmosphere, is it? Some no, it's about... It, 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 in the electricity sector, it's about that, but there's a whole lot of other sources of carbon. And forestries, you know, forest destruction, 17%. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff in the transport sector, but coal is probably 30 or 40% of the total problem. So how do we get to a point from where we are here at the moment? I mean, uh, in, in response to Naomi Klein, there's been another article came out. There was a long essay by a man called Mark Grief, mm. um, who wrote a book called the, the Crisis of the Age of Man. Mm. And in the last, on the last page of it, he, he has this fantastic quote where he just says, um, you know, any time your inquiries lead you to say, at this moment we must ask and decide who we fundamentally are, mm. just stop. That's right. Yeah. Because, because you've actually got, you know, it's, yeah. we, can't, we can't be looking at changing all our complete political systems. We actually have to start That's addressing right. the problem. Yeah as it is yeah that's right and look i have hoped that we can do this without well we need to change capitalism but we don't need to change it perhaps in order to achieve this now and the reason i say that is that the wind and solar have now really won the day in terms of cheap efficient energy in terms of the market yeah. the market yeah they are the market choice now i mean for the last three years running there's been more investment in renewables than in fossil fuels and the, they're, they're very they're cheap in the market uh, the price of coal has collapsed because no one wants the stuff. The problem we've got, it was identified very well in an Oxford study of, of power generation globally. There's about 300 very large antique coal-fired power plants around the world 
that are spewing out pollution at a great rate, if we could close them all down this year, we would basically get to where we need, need to go to. Now, you know, a lot of those plants are in places like India, which has a perpetual energy drought. So it's a big ask for us to, say, close down those plants. When we in Australia, who have an abundance of antique coal-fired power plants, refuse to move to close them down. We could close down our plants now um, with very little impact if we, you know, stage it over the next, say, five years and really invested in renewables and batteries and everything else that's required to do the, make the transition. In fact, South Australia, it's interesting, you know, that state has led the nation in terms of wind and solar. They will close down their coal-fired power plants on or before April 2017. So they'll be the first state to go coal-free. So we know how to do it. <laughs> we know. But are, are you saying they're actually going to go coal-free? They are, absolutely. They, there will be they no, must. There will be no yeah. power generation from coal fire in, in, in South, South Australia. That's right. They're closing down their last plants. Alinta has announced the close down on or before, I think it's April 20th, 2017. So it could be as early as April 2016, April next year. So they have led the way. They've, they've, they've invested in wind and solar. They've got all of the, the, the renewables they need. They're going to close their coal down and they're on their way, you know. The rest of the country hasn't done that. We haven't had a RAND government that's been in for a decade and consistently given the right sort of policy that's required to develop the renewables. But we know how to do it, you know. So, but if th the point I want to make is if we can't close down those old co coal-fired power plants, how can we ask the South Africans of the world and the Indias of the world to do it? The other thing is, of course, that there is a lot of money tied up. That We have the Koch brothers who are prepared to spend $1 billion in 2016 to try and get a Republican president elected who w will support fossil fuel industries. How do, how do we compete with that? I think I've learnt through my experience with the Climate Council that good citizens united in purpose are far more powerful than any wealthy individuals in a society, and I mean that very sincerely. Um, you know, uh, it, let's take it on American terms to explain that. You know, there, there were some very prominent Tea Party representatives who, um, when they got to Washington, and I, I can't remember the woman's name now, but one of the major ones, w had a look at the solar industry, rooftops PV. We're not talking about Sarah Palin. No, no, not Sarah <laughs> Palin, but someone from the South, really Tea Party type <coughs> person. Yeah. Um, she realised that actually this was very in line with her beliefs of freedom of the individual and, you know, the whole Tea Party thing, you know, small government and all the rest of it, and freedom from monopolies. So she has become an absolute uh, crusader. She has stopped anti-PV laws in about 27 states now uh, around the US. The Koch brothers tried to buy her out. She wouldn't do it because she, you know, stood by her beliefs. Um, so I think we've got to start engaging people a little bit differently from both the left and right. We've got to somehow... Uh, make sure that you know citizens with the best interests of their community at heart somehow get together and get a chance to express themselves and we're seeing that with i mean in a very small way in australia with things like the, the climate council and so forth where and and solar citizens you know we're, we're getting together to, to to achieve things i think we'll get there but the big question i have is will we get there in time and yeah. that's the, the big I mean, one of the things that you're saying is it feels to me like we've had a kind of lost decade. And an, an outside observer could say that possibly the activists for, cl for ad addressing climate change have failed 
really a lot in the last 10 years. And I wonder if, this, if you have any thoughts about why that might be, because it, it seems like just in the last two years, mm -hmm. activism with uh, the divestment program, with yeah. various other things, is starting to actually get some traction. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. what happened in that eight or 10 years before that, where, we, where there just seemed to be no traction at all. Well, I was kind of in the middle of a fight through that time. I, you know, I wrote The Weathermakers, I met people all around the world at fairly high political levels. I, I ran the Copenhagen Climate Council for three years to encourage business to engage in the issue. Um, and if I could just say, I mean, of, I, you know, it, the, the, the carbon tax in British Columbia in Canada, I met with the Premier of British Columbia when he was considering that, and we had a quite a lengthy discussion about the carbon tax and why it might work, you know. Richard Branson was the same. I mean, a whole, anyway, I don't want to go on, but there was things happening at that time. But we were in a position through that period where the, the solutions were still, m in a market sense, immature. So you needed subsidies for wind and solar in order to grow them to scale, to make them cheap enough to be truly competitive. So that was an impediment. The, the, you know, the fossil fuel industries could argue, well, these renewables are great, but they, they, they always need a subsidy, and if we can just slam down on a subsidy, we won't, we'll, we'll get rid of the competition. Thankfully, there was a few countries like Germany that, that really put a lot of money into that, into the renewables, and, and saw them grow. Yeah. Uh, the, the, de the developing world was acting as a block, so China saw itself as part of the G77 developing world, don't step on our toes. You, you're the problem. You developed all the people who put all the fossil fuel up there initially. Leave us alone to follow our development path. There were a whole series of things that were just not right, allowing us to make the breakthrough. And of course, the internet wasn't what it is today. The interconnectivity between people wasn't what it is today. And that, all, all of those things have changed in the last three to four years, really. The renewables have finally got to cost competitiveness. And just incidentally, I was looking last week at... Um, power purchase agreements done in Texas. Austin, Texas signed a power purchase agreement with a solar plant for electricity at a price of four cents a kilowatt hour. Now, the last time I looked at those prices, it was six cents. That is just, they're getting cheaper and cheaper by the week. Right? Yeah. So we're there now with that. We know we can drive fossil fuels out of the marketplace if we can close down the old plant that's already paid for and is really cheap to run because they don't have any pollution protection on them. You know. How much does it cost per kilowatt for a coal-fired power station? It's probably less. It's probably like the stuff in the Latrobe Valley would be a couple of cents because everything's paid for. These old plants that they're running into the ground, they're not investing in. They're just, you know, rip it up and let, let go. If we said to those plants, you have to put sulphur scrubbers on them so people don't die of pulmonary disease in the Latrobe Valley, they'd close them instantly because they don't want to make those investments. You know? mm -hmm. So anyway, but... So, so, it's a so, that's so it's a matter of political will there, though. In a, yeah, in there it's a matter of regulation. We need the political will to regulate. Right? We yeah. need people to demand that we regulate for that, and we'll close them down overnight, I can guarantee you, if you get that regulation in place. Yeah. The, the developing countries have really changed as well. China, in about five years ago, realised that they were choking in their own effluvia, that you know, average life expectancy declined by over five years in northern China as a result, and this is before the big carbon, uh, sorry, the big cancer epidemic, which is going to happen in, in future decades. Um, they also realised they could make an absolute fortune by becoming the world's manufacturer for solar and wind. So they changed totally. Their, their use of coal has declined by 2.5% last year. They're out of that game now. They're onto something new. They've still got a big legacy, which dates from the time Australian business people and government representatives were in China saying, if you're going to industrialise, you've got to use coal, and we've got the cleanest coal in the world. And so there's a bit of Oda Hunter Valley and Oda bloody Illawarra, you know, in every 
breath of foul blooming air that you breathe in China because we were part of that problem. Um, but that's changed. Uh, at the same time, interconnectedness between people has changed. So the you know, Australian Youth Climate Coalition have organised to go and speak to 300 branch managers of um, Westpac banks around the country out of the 400. So that's a big impact. People who are members in a, uh, in, in a superannuation fund can get together and say en masse, we, want you to, we don't want you investing in fossil fuels anymore. And of course it makes sense because the price of oil and coal are down the gurgler, you know. So, can you just give us a little bit of summary of what you think is actually going to come out of the December talks? Because, yeah, because sure. I, I mean, mm. you've got this morning, apart from President Hollande saying that, mm. one of the other things he said was that if the, 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 in order for it to be successful, there has to be a commitment by the developed countries to provide funding to the developing nations to decarbonise or to, to decarbonise their systems. But there's also... Um, the presence of the Southeast, um, South Pacific nations this morning was saying, if we, if you don't stop your coal mines, we're going to lose our islands. So yeah. there needs to be, there needs to be a bit of quid pro quo here somewhere. I remember when I was in Copenhagen, uh, Brian Fisher, who was then the head of ABARE, ABARE, and who was also on the, uh, the Renewables Energy Review along with Eddington and the others. Um, when that was brought up with him as a, as an official, an Australian official, he said. Well, it's, it's more it's more cost effective for those Pacific Island states just to vanish under the waves than it is for us to close our coal-fired power. He said it publicly. Um, so we've come a long way since 2007. We know we're not saying that anymore, even though some of us may still believe it. And some people who said that are still in powerful positions in terms of determining our renewable energy policy. But, uh, but I think what your question, what's going to come out of Paris? I think we're going to get a deal, which is really, it's a great, great news that we'll get a global deal on this. Uh, the, glo the global deal will result in a trajectory which is more aimed at three degrees and four degrees, where we are now, four or more. We're on the worst case scenario. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but you've said that that's catastrophic. Three is catastrophic, exactly, it is. Um, but it's better than four. <laughs> four, is, four is crisp planet, you know, ice-free planet. Three, you're buying some time. But the, the, so we, but we know already what the deal is going to be because the cards are on the table for that deal. What we don't know about is those funds, as we said, to decarbonise developing countries more quickly and the review period for new pledges. At the moment, the pledges are made each decade. So the Paris meeting is talking about actions that will take place between 2020 and 2030. Okay. If we can shorten that review period to five years and say, well, let's, let's gather forces again in 2025 and ask ourselves... Is what we're doing enough? Do we need to deepen our ambition, given what we now know? I think that'd be a great outcome. Um, even, we, even if everything goes optimally at Paris and we get a five-year review period and we get a generous payment to developing countries to help them decarbonise their economies, we're still headed to two degrees. It's, it's the legacy of that decade of inaction that's, that's, that's done that for us, unfortunately. And it's hard to find a way to see a way around it. As I said, even if we cut all carbon emissions as a globe today, full stop, we're still going to reach one and a half degrees. Yeah, it's just that there's you know the inertia of the system is substantial. But what one of the things that you're saying in your book there is that if we could reach one and a half degrees, and then we can actually start decarbonising the atmosphere by various oh, technologies, exactly. then it's possible. Well, that'd be an ideal world if we could stop all of our carbon emissions right now. Lights go out and whatever you know, <laughs> stop it, and then start drawing carbon down. We'd be in great shape. But that's not yeah. going to happen because 
um, we can't stop carbon emissions today full stop and we don't have the technologies at a mature state to deploy to draw carbon down. It's going to take 30 years before they're drawing down gigatons. But we need to start investing today to make sure that they are available in 20 to 30 years' time. Okay. So look, I, I've, I've probably been monopolising you a little bit. I think we should probably put it over to the hall and see if we got because we've got a couple of roaming mics. Tim, you mentioned uh, there's a, a decarbonisation mix uh, that we're all going to have to uh, take on board. Um, do you see nuclear power as part of that mix? And if you do, does Australia have a part to play globally in, in that? Look, uh, probably the best way that I can answer that is to look at the trajectory of the nuclear industry over, say, the last couple of decades. You know, nuclear went through a strong growth phase in the 1970s. Uh, it was supplying something like 17% of electricity production at its peak. It's now declined to something like 14% of the, uh, the global mix. And the, the gigawatt hours it's producing, or 12%, I think it is now, the gigawatt hours it's producing have declined as well. And that's come about from a for a number of reasons. Um, no one's building nuclear, large nuclear plant now, except well, on scale, except people like China. The reason China is doing it is they're a command economy and the government can afford to uh, effectively guarantee the price of electricity for 50 years out, because you need to do that if you're building a nuclear plant and you want to pay back the money, uh, and, and also assume the risk, all of the risk involved. Um, if you just put yourself in the position of uh, an investor, so you've got two proposals before you. One of them is for, say, $20 billion to build a 2,000 megawatt nuclear plant. Now, government will assume all the risk around it, so you don't need to worry about that. But what you do have to be doing is selling your electricity at a profit 50 years from now. So you've got to get someone to guarantee a price 50 years on, right? And then the other option you've got is, is wind or solar. So a wind turbine might cost you a million dollars and solar panels you can put on for a few thousand if you want. And because they're modular, you just build them up as you want, as you need to invest. The price of solar is declining by 10% per annum and has done every year for the last 30 years. The price of wind is going to half in the next five years because of the, the manufacturing process is just being dramatically reorganised. And gearless wind turbines and 3D printers on, on, on rotor blades and stuff are just changing the industry very quickly. So, so there's your choices. Um, and you only need a 20-year power purchase agreement for those because the shorter payback periods because of the nature of the technology and the plant. So where do you invest? Are you going to put your 15 billion in something with a 50-year payback and all of the uncertainty around that, or are you going to put however much you feel like into wind or solar? And investors have spoken with their dollars. It's all going into wind and solar. No one's building new nuclear, um, except for places like China and, and one or two plants elsewhere in the world. Even France is backing away from nuclear power now. They're, they're really they've gone on a massive program of wind and solar installation. So my, for my guess, the world is not going to go down a nuclear path um, uh, in Australia, therefore, really, we, we may accept a bit of waste from ageing nuclear power plants, but it's not, it's, in terms of the energy transition, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a small thing. Uh, I want to thank you, Tim, first of all, for your passion and time you put into this. It's just, it's awesome, and it, uh, it's so helpful. Thank you. Um, won't spend very much time on fossil fuels versus uh, sustainable energy. Of course, the new kid on the block, and you mentioned about the decoupling mm -hmm. from, uh, from the economy from fossil fuels, mm -hmm. and the new kid on the block is this uh, tidal stream 
underwater, they, they call them underwater windmills. Of course, they're not windmills, yeah. but anyway. E even Joe Hockey couldn't find them offensive unless he takes up diving. That's right. But, but, um, <laughs> but the two things that do concern me are, number one, the penchant for growth of both our governments and business, and number two, population. Yeah, they're, they're, and they are enormous issues. They're, they're huge. Um, you know, this determination to grow uh, and to live in a, a fast-growing economy and accumulate wealth as we have over recent decades is, is problematic. Um, I think it's changing. I mean, I, I could spend about an hour talking about this. It was one of the things I, I look at with real interest. But the growth of the sharing economy, Uber, you know, Airbnb, many of these apps now for younger people to let them not own things but lease them or use them as they, as they want and act in a collective manner to do things is, is really inspiring. And I think that may be going to challenge this global growth story. Growth will be seen differently. Um, it's not just a dollar, it's your social credit that's going to be important. And that's really interesting. In terms of population, I, I agree with you, that's a major issue. We look like we're headed for 9.5 billion by 2050. But what infuriates me about that is it's a problem we know how to solve. We know what we need to do to fix a population problem. All we need to do is empower the women in developing countries, give them more autonomy over their own body and, and a bigger stake in the economy. If we can do that, which is just justice, we'll solve the problem. So, you know, if I was looking at Australia's foreign aid budget, that's where I'd be focusing it. And you bring the whole community with you if you do that. If you, if you give women um, a bigger stake in things, then the whole, the whole community is going to benefit. Tim, uh, I read The Future Eaters when I was in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan oh, wow. in the mid-90s. That was the first time I came in contact with your writing. And I was very impressed. But speaking of your books, um, you've mentioned tonight all these wonderful ideas that you've got in your books. But how many people are going to read your books? I will, and probably a lot of these people will. You're preaching to the converted here tonight. I wonder if Rupert Murdoch does, or Tony Abbott, or Joe Hockey, or Barnaby Joyce, or even Bill Shorten. And the problem is that most people read the Murdoch newspapers and, and a few others, and Stephen said earlier, uh, let's assume everybody believes climate change. Well, even the range news has, news, has uh, letters written by not what I'd call sceptics, but deniers. Mm. <coughs> and let's make a, a distinction between a denier and a sceptic. I'm a sceptic. Every scientist should be. Yes, yeah. But a denier is something else. Yeah, that's right. We've got the Tea Party in control of our government here. So mm. this is the problem we've got in this country. To me, there aren't enough people who are writing in the mm. newspapers or the newspapers don't publish the articles they should be and we're not getting through to Mr. Average. Could I... I, I, I can see what you're saying there, but I... I, 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 I kind of disagree with, with your assessment of where we are. And I suppose my perspective has come about from the Climate Council engagement with people. And we've seen there, we're now reaching 200,000 Australians directly with our reports and announcements and, and so forth. And that's, that is huge, really, to have that direct feed. They're mostly younger people, I admit, who you know, use Twitter and Facebook and whatever else. But that stuff is shared really widely now. Um, 
So the newspapers are important, but they're not everything. And there is this, this shift that's happening in our society, I, I'm convinced. I think the old political system and the old economic system are teetering. And, you know, a, a, God, a symptom of that's got to be Bronwyn Bishop in a helicopter over Hopper's Crossing, <coughs> looking down at those poor taxpayers who are footing the bill for her, you know, having the, the helicopter on standby for five hours before she uses it. And ev I think every Australian asked, you know, well, this is our representative democracy at work. You know, is she representing um, her electorate? Doesn't look like it from you know, down there and looking at the helicopter. Um, is she representing the integrity of the Australian Parliament as a speaker should? Again, you'd say probably not. Is she representing herself? Yes, yeah, she is. And that truth has now been stripped bare for a lot of people. And I think that there is a huge amount of uh, resentment and anger and determination to change. And I, I really feel that in the community, and particularly among younger people. You know, there's four whole electorates worth of younger people who are so disenfranchised with the political process, not even bothering to register to vote. We need a change, we need a different system where we have a truly representative democracy where each and every one of us can play some role at some point in the decision-making process. Speaking recently to some you know, politicians here in Queensland and saying, you know, you've got a unique opportunity here. You're the only state without an upper house. Why don't you put in a people's upper house in place where people are chosen at random by ballot as you would for a jury process to sit for a month or two or three months, whatever the period is, in the upper house and review what the government's doing and pay them for their time, you know? Give them a significant role and pay them a time because that way people will become engaged in the process and become empowered. It's just one way through. There's a whole lot of ways you could, you could do it. But if I, I really feel that we're, we're on the brink of big changes, despite what Mr Murdoch says, whose father, incidentally, was a frontline reporter in World War I, so how people like that continue to have such influence in the world, I don't know. Um, often when I'm uh, talking to people my own age, there's a really common tendency to become quite overwhelmed with global warming and mm. a lot of people my age, they'll see like a shock campaign and they'll really switch off. Um, mm. As a peer of these people, how do you suggest that I approach talking about climate change with them? Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll give you a, a simplest message I can. The boom in third-way technologies that has to happen, right? That, that boom is going to dwarf the tech boom because the scale of the problem is known. We know what it is. We know what some of the options are for dealing with it. We know how badly we're going to need it. That boom is going to employ more young people who are your age today in 20 or 30 years than the tech boom does now. You know, it, it's going to be a massive thing. So in every situation, there is both danger and opportunity. You know, the danger is that we don't slam down on the emissions reductions hard enough and we don't make the investments in the tech boom. But you, people your age, should be looking at these, these third-way technologies if you're, if you're that way inclined and say, well, well, where can I engage? Is it the tree planting end, the agriculture end? Is it the really high-tech end of you know, making plastics from CO2 from the atmosphere? You know, where, where is it on that? Is it seaweed farming? You know, whatever it is, there's the options are out there and we know we're going to need them. So I would just say to young people, that yes, there is a danger in, in my generation failing to slam down on the emissions as we need to do. There's signs we'll do it, but it's an issue. But if I was you, I'd focus on that huge opportunity that's going to develop into the future, I think. Uh, and sure, wind and solar are part of it, but there's even bigger ones on the horizon. And demand that your government makes the right decisions in terms of R&D, that they invest in these future technologies in a meaningful way to give us some proprietary interest, some intellectual property and some 
capacity for manufacturing again in this country around these these technologies. Uh, that's absolutely essential. And you know, the, the, the loss of Australian manufacturing is one of the great tragedies, in my view, for this country. It really is. It's depriving people of your age of a really secure future. You know, if Norway can do it and Italy can do it and these other countries about our size can do it, why can't we? Yeah, yeah. Some time ago, you wrote in the monthly about the uh, grass movements in Spain, mm. and Naomi Klein's also talked about uh, the necessity for grassroots movements. But not long ago, I did a bit of um, poking around for a research project, and there's another apparently untapped resource. I was amazed to see the amount of material from huge insurance companies, mm. from the insurance industry. I believe it's about the largest industry in the world, uh, dollar-wise. Uh, there are investor groups, there are property developers, um, all these people take climate change utterly seriously mm. because it's money to them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder, is there some way perhaps the Climate Council could work as the, uh, the alliance maker? If those people were drawn together with the clout that they have, with mm. the money that they have, surely they'd be very influential in bringing um, not only our government but maybe global governments to account. Yeah. I might just repeat the question because I think not everyone heard it clearly, but Great question. the question was essentially, you know, there's a lot of industries who take climate change very seriously, including the insurance and reinsurance industries. Could the Climate Council act as a sort of a, a, a focus group or a, a point of engagement for the community with those industries to get them to put their view to the government convincingly? Um, we could theoretically. The problem with this this recent federal government is that it's extremely vindictive. Uh, people who stand up and oppose it get personal phone calls from the Prime Minister's office. Uh, and, and there's a blacklist that exists, I'm, I'm assured, with many, many names on it of people, lawyers and others, who've done things in the climate change area um, uh, uh, who won't get work, future work in the area. So business is very reluctant to step up to the plate in those circumstances. They would endanger their shareholders' money if they do that. So the whole thing's become so, uh, so much of an ideological struggle that it's very hard for business to engage at the moment, regardless of their, their view. Unless you're the coal industry and you want to put an advertising campaign together, of course. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Little Black Rock or whatever it's called. Oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> so, so uh, yes, in an ideal world, yes. But the reality of our political situation is it's so bad that it's not going to practically work for business at the moment. OK, so we've got time for just one last question here. Yeah, thanks, Tim, for coming up. It's a real privilege to have you here. There's a couple of, couple of questions. One, one is for the, um, in the conversion of, of iron ore to steel. I believe there's a significant volume of coal is used for that, for the oxidisation yes. of, of the iron ore. The other one, other point is, is the renewables are, are great when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining. Mm. What do you do in the, the peak periods when, in fact, it's not, not occurring for you? Yeah, sure. <coughs> uh, look, the first thing, that the use of coal in terms of uh, steel making is a very important point. Um, at the moment, we use very high-grade coal, which is called metallurgical coal or anthracite, um, in that process. And that will probably go on for a number of years. And that coal is used to drag the oxygen atoms off the, the ferrous material, off the ferrous oxide, so that it, it de-rusts it, basically, and gives you the, the pure iron. 
Um, there are people in uh, Korea, researchers in Korea, who are working on using hydrogen as a reductant in that process. Hydrogen is a um, is an even better reductant in terms of steel making than, than carbon in coal. Um, but you'd have to reconfigure the, the, furn blast, the furnaces that are used um, by the, the industry in order to use hydrogen. And the only source of hydrogen at scale that's economic at the moment is the nuclear industry. So you'd be tagging steel making onto the back of nuclear. But that's in any case a decade or two away from, from widespread deployment. But that technology is being developed. Uh, you, you, the other point you made was the intermittency of renewables. And it is true that, that, that they're intermittent and that, um, that, that there, there may be times when you, you, you have a, a lull in the wind or you have um, a cloudy day and you're getting less solar. In fact, Germany had a kind of brownout day like that where it was very cloudy recently when it was unexpected, which caused them some problems. But the point is, um, the more widespread your grid is and the more interconnected it is, the less chance of those sort of perturbations having a big impact on the system. So if we had an east-west interconnector in Australia, for example, we will be able to harvest wind as it blew across the southern part of the continent and you'd be able to predict with great accuracy when, if, it ev if ever, you'd have a four-day period without wind coming across there. That involves some redundancy in the wind, you know, you need more wind turbines, but you need redundancy anyway, even with coal-fired power plants. They're taken out of commission to... Uh, uh, for various reasons, maintenance and so forth, they only run 50% of the time. Solar, likewise, you know, the more you've, you're more dispersed it is, the less likely you're going to have problems with clouds. Um, so storage is the other big issue there. Once you've got some storage back up, you can run completely with those. There's some solar technologies that give you storage, such as liquid salt. There's a very interesting new Italian one that uses sand as a storage mechanism as well. Um, there are other storage options. You can pump water up in hydro, even small-scale hydro in a place like this, you could pump water up uh, when you've got excess uh, electricity from the renewables and then release it and uh, use your hydro plant to generate more electricity. But that's already done in many places around the world. Battery technology is developing. I, I think it's overhyped. I think that, um, that we're not going to have batteries available at cost and at the scale required for many years yet. But nevertheless, that technology is developing and once you have that sort of storage, even with electric vehicles, you've started to solve the problem again. So, um, yes, there are problems at the moment, but there are solutions to all of those issues of intermittency that we can see developing, and many of them developing quite quickly. So, thank you for that. The, the, I was listening to that uh, lady, Sylvia Earle, the oceanographer on the radio the other day, and, and she actually came, said something that quite surprised me. She said that she actually thought it was the best time to be living on the planet of any time of human history because we are actually in a place where we now have the knowledge of what problems we face. And mm -hmm. as once you've got the knowledge about what the problems you are you face, then you can actually start fixing them. So, you know, a, a book like this brings us to, to brings, brings an atmosphere of hope to the situation. So I would just like to ask you all, please, to put your hands together to thank Professor Tim Flannery. <laughs>